0: Welcome to Hub Headlines. Today's program features the best commentary and analysis published in the Hub for February 28th. Up first is Joanna Barron writing on the Online Harms Act, the lack of clarity in the bill, and how it endangers
1: free speech. The internet is an ugly place. A few days ago, my colleagues gave me a heads up that a Twitter account was calling me out as a Caucasoitic Jew in charge of a Jew charity. I take the word Caucasoitic To mean i'm a fair-skinned jew the latter part is a bit more confusing because the charity i direct has no religious or ethnic affiliations i laughed and blocked the account but the liberals newly proposed law suggests that not acting on these kinds of tweets could leave elon musk on the hook for six percent of x's global revenues that's just one example of the absurdities that could result if minister of justice arif Verani's revamped Online Harms Act passes in Parliament. Bill C-63 is aimed at regulating a wide swath of undesirable online conduct, from child sexual exploitation material, already criminalized, to the more amorphous content that foments hatred. The Liberals' decision to deal with this range of conduct in one fell swoop perhaps distracts from the reality that the Online Harms Act is a profoundly anti-free expression bill that threatens draconian penalties for online speech, chilling legitimate expression by the mere specter of a complaint to the Canadian Human Rights Commission or the New Digital Safety Commission of Canada. The bill beefs up criminal penalties for instances of hate speech and creates a new standalone offence motivated by hatred. The hate crime of advocating genocide previously punishable by up to five years imprisonment now carries a possibility of life imprisonment. Advocating genocide is evil, but it's stunning to think someone in a free society could spend life in prison for their words. Previously, a finding that a crime was motivated by hate could be considered as an aggravating factor in sentencing. Now, an offense motivated by hatred is a separate offense, which can be charged and prosecuted by police and prosecutors. Verani proudly touted this new standalone offense as allowing offenses motivated by hate to be charged on the front end, suggesting the government is signaling to law enforcement to seek, charge, and prosecute more such crimes. Even worse, the bill provides a preventative criminal restraint on suspected future speech anyone with the Attorney General's consent can request that a judge order a 12-month recognizance to keep the peace if they have reasonable grounds to suspect that someone might commit hate speech in the future. If they agree, they can be subject to major restrictions on liberty such as giving a bodily sample, refraining from drugs and alcohol, and wearing an ankle monitor. If they refuse, they can be imprisoned. The bill also brings back a civil remedy for communicating alleged instances of hate speech in the form of reviving the dreaded section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act, specifying that such instances constitute discrimination and are liable to be investigated by the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. The tribunal will expand to as many as 20 government-appointed bureaucrats tasked with policing allegations of harmful speech. Even if most alleged instances are dismissed as not meeting the threshold of hate speech, the penalties for individuals found liable, up to $50,000 paid to the government plus $20,000 paid to the victim, are severe enough that we can infer the new regime will lead to large amounts of backpedaling and self-censorship by people accused of crossing the line. We will also see more people punished for their speech, considering that Section 13 creates a civil offense that need only be proved on a balance of probabilities which is much easier than meeting the criminal law's more stringent threshold of beyond a reasonable doubt. The bill makes extensive use of what has been called jaw-boning. Delegating to and pressuring social media platforms to themselves take steps to police their users. Platforms are tasked with a duty to act responsibly and minimize harms to users. They must provide a mechanism for users to flag harmful content, which is defined as including speech that foments hatred. The bill clarifies that platforms may limit users' free expression, just not disproportionately. If platforms don't comply with the bill's stipulations, They are on the hook for $10 million in fines or 6% of global revenues, whichever is higher. The press conference outlining Bill C-63 was led off, somewhat unusually, not by the minister but by a woman whose toddler was the victim of tragic sexual abuse filmed and disseminated online. Her harrowing testimony foregrounded some of the bill's priorities, which are obviously laudable. That said viewing or distributing child sexual exploitation material is already strictly criminalized. It's also good news that the only harmful content that must be removed within 24 hours is child sexual exploitation material and revenge porn. The earlier iteration of the bill that died on the order paper in 2021 also required alleged hate speech to be taken down within 24 hours. This positive development is not surprising considering Germany's attempts to impose takedown requirements on alleged hate speech have resulted in over-enforcement by platforms and a chill on edgy but legal speech. But the Liberals' decision to highlight the woman's story as the kernel of the bill's motivation reveals their broader strategy to merge two very different types of social ills, which merit two different legislative responses. Child sexual exploitation is evil and should be subject to a strict zero-tolerance approach. Platforms have increasingly sophisticated algorithms for detecting and flagging it, and police have specialized training in investigating it. It is indeed appropriate to act decisively to ensure the physical and psychological safety of children online, but that should not be tied to laws that severely restrict speech. Online hate speech is categorically different, amorphous, and unavoidably subjective. The bill adopts the Supreme Court's definition of hate speech, described as speech that is likely to foment detestation or vilification. But detestation is really just a synonym for hate and vilification is also a highly subjective concept. On the left, calling someone a trans-exclusionary radical feminist is a form of vilification, while on the right, somewhere the term is a badge of honor. Just last week, Toronto Star columnist Shri Paratkar penned a morally abhorrent column defending Hamas as a legitimate governing force this week and was promptly called a terror apologist on X. Did Paritkar's critics vilify her? Conversely, did the Toronto Star vilify Jews and Israelis? It's in the eye of the beholder. Though these statements arguably constitute vilification, It's unlikely that any of these allegations would end up being investigated as hate crimes. Nevertheless, it's also difficult to put your finger on the line that separates them from criminal hate speech, which, as I mentioned, now poses possible penalties of life imprisonment in the case of advocating genocide, and, for social media companies, potentially millions of dollars in fines. This lack of clarity poses a real threat to online discourse, which should brook passionate and adversarial disagreements. When these kinds of sanctions are in play, everyone has an incentive to err on the side of caution. The Liberals have dealt with both, though, in the same heavy-handed manner. This seems to be the only mode this government knows. That was a
0: commentary by Joanna Barron. She's the Executive Director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation, a legal charity. You can find the full text of her article on our website thehub.ca Our second essay is by Dave Snow, who is an associate professor in political science at the University of Guelph. He's writing today on ideological diversity in academia and where it is lacking, what the data shows, and the conclusions he draws on shifts in scholarship.
2: If the Canadian public starts to wonder whether universities are providing value for money, social science and humanities departments ought to be nervous. Precarious provincial finances coupled with the recently announced federal cap on international students, will inevitably put greater pressure on Canadian university budgets. Alongside less-than-stellar enrollment trends, there is increasing evidence of a lack of ideological diversity among these university faculty members, whose views are largely out of step with Canadian public opinion. Many in these departments seem to view their mission as decolonizing the academy and embracing intersectional considerations rather than producing knowledge or debate. In Canada, these trends have crept into my own discipline of political science. In 2022, the Canadian Political Science Association approved an equity, diversity, inclusion, and decolonization mission statement that, among other things, emphasized the need to resist and undo the forces of colonialism. More importantly, in October 2023, the new editors of the Canadian Journal of Political Science published a wide-reaching letter declaring their intention to modernize the journal with a particular focus on addressing the legacy and ongoing effects of colonialism and systemic racism within the discipline, and they declared the journal was officially committed to equity, diversity, inclusion, and decolonization in its content, methodological approaches, and governance Prospective authors are now questioned if equity, diversity, inclusion, and decolonization has been considered when they submit their papers. This esteemed political science journal had stated its intentions to make decolonization a central pillar of the publication going forward. The Canadian Journal of Political Science is the flagship journal of the discipline in Canada. It describes itself as the primary forum for innovative research on all facets of Canadian politics and government as well as the principal outlet for Canadian political science scholarship. The journal has traditionally published a wide range of quantitative and qualitative content on all facets of Canadian political science, from elections to political theory. As such, the new editor's statement effectively accused the journal itself of contributing to discrimination. In Canadian political science, they wrote, Whiteness and white androcentric or male-centered paradigms have served a gatekeeping function, keeping a body of diverse scholars and scholarship out of the core of the discipline. According to the editors, this gatekeeping was not merely a relic of the past, but an ongoing sin of the present. The backlash and resistance these scholars have faced and continue to face is often couched in assertions that their research is biased, not empirical, and lacking rigor. The new editors did not precisely specify which scholarship had been kept out of the discipline, but they were presumably referring to a broad range of critical and intersectional approaches that view politics, society, and academia as innately and structurally oppressive towards marginalized communities. Such scholarship is often criticized for its bias, lack of empirical rigor, and non-falsifiability but the idea that it had been somehow excluded from the Canadian Journal of Political Science seemed to fly in the face of my experience as a peer-reviewer and regular consumer of the journal's content, who had already noticed an increasing amount of intersectionality in its pages. To determine if this was true, I conducted a content analysis of the abstracts of 227 papers, research articles, research notes, long-form review essays, brief currents pieces, and presidential addresses, published in issues of the Canadian Journal of Political Science between 2019 to 2023. I excluded book reviews and the 24 brief pieces on COVID-19 that were published in a special section of the June 2020 issue. I reviewed the titles, abstracts, keywords, and, when necessary for the categorization described below, more detailed content in the papers themselves. The results of this analysis painted a very different picture than what the editor's note suggested. I first categorized each paper according to whether it contained some form of statistical or quantitative data collection and or analysis the most traditional form of gatekeeping in social science journals. I found that, while quantitative and statistical work remains prominent in the journal, it is by no means ubiquitous. 67% of all papers involve some form of quantitative data collection or analysis. Between 2019 to 2022, this percentage was roughly stable between 64 to 76%, though it dropped to 56% in 2023. I also categorized each paper according to whether it had a major focus on marginalized communities, specifically on race, women, gender, LGBTQ issues, and indigenous peoples. If, as the journal's editorial board suggested, a body of diverse scholars and scholarship had been excluded from the core of the discipline one would expect to find that research on marginalized communities was, well, marginalized. Yet this is not what I found. Fully 29% of papers published between 2019 to 2023 had a major emphasis on at least one of these marginalized communities. In 2023, it was 38%. A focus on indigenous peoples was most frequent. Between 2019 to 2023, 14% of all papers published in the journal had a major focus on indigeneity. This proportion was highest in 2023 when 19% of all papers, 9 of 48, contained a major focus on indigenous peoples. Overall, the journal contains no shortage of papers which have sought to address the legacy and ongoing effects of colonialism and systemic racism in political science. However, perhaps the new editors were arguing that the journal's previous gatekeepers have only allowed papers on marginalized communities to be published if they included quantitative empirical content and avoided critical theory. If that were the case, one would expect papers where the focus on marginalized communities would include roughly the same proportion of statistical data analysis as other papers. Alas, this was not the case. Only 54% of papers with a major focus on marginalized communities contained quantitative data collection or analysis, compared with 73% of papers that did not focus on marginalized communities. Nearly all this variance can be explained by papers focusing on indigeneity, only 31% of all papers in which indigenous peoples featured prominently involved some form of quantitative data collection or analysis, 10 of 32, compared with 73 of papers in which indigenous peoples did not feature prominently. This trend continued apace in 2023, when only one of nine papers focusing on Indigenous peoples, 11%, contained some form of quantitative data, compared with 67% of non-Indigenous-focused papers, 26 of 39. There are many ways to interpret this data. One interpretation is that political science scholarship that focuses on marginalized communities and indigenous peoples in particular is simply less likely to require the rigorous use of data than scholarship on, say, elections or public opinion. There is likely some truth to this, though it does not fully explain why papers focusing on women gender (78%), and the LGBTQ community 100%, had such high rates of data collection or analysis. Another interpretation could be that for certain forms of scholarship focusing on marginalized communities, reviewers and journal editors at the Canadian Journal of Political Science have reduced expectations that such research needs to involve the use of data. I have no special insight into whether either or neither of these interpretations is true. All I can say is that the journal editor's accusation that gatekeepers have kept out diverse perspectives on the grounds of discriminatory empiricism is simply not supported by the data. A closer look at the content within these papers also dispels the idea that the journal is a bastion of white androcentric paradigms keeping out marginalized voices. Each of the past four annual addresses from the president of the Canadian Political Science Association published in the journal each year contained a substantial focus on indigenous peoples. Over the last five years, the journal has published papers with titles such as The Politics of White Identity and Settlers' Indigenous Resentment in Canada. Authors have argued that non-Indigenous Canadians should consider themselves foreigners in need of invitation onto Indigenous lands, that the ability to engage in democratic activities is profoundly different depending upon which side of whiteness a person finds themselves, and that a decolonized approach to studying the policing and prisons must be relational and abolitionist, seeking to reduce and eliminate the use of carceral interventions. Moreover, when these critical perspectives are published, they are rarely, if ever, challenged. Of the 32 papers published in the Canadian Journal of Political Science between 2019 to 2023, in which the topic of Indigenous Peoples featured prominently, none involved anything that could be considered a critique of the decolonization narrative that runs through so much of Canadian academia. Even in the quantitative work involving Indigenous Peoples published in the journal, scholars almost always include statements recognizing the historic wrongs against Indigenous Peoples or that it is important to acknowledge the significant amount of invisible labor that falls on racialized and indigenous faculty this is not to say that this scholarship is unworthy of publication or that the sentiments expressed are not correct it is only to say that these perspectives have not been marginalized if anything they are growing in salience far from being excluded from the discipline authors engaging in what the journals editors referred to as diverse scholarship are publishing with greater frequency in the journal Without the expectation that the work must involve empirical data to ensure publication, I draw three main conclusions. First, Canadian political science scholarship is clearly shifting in important ways. For better or worse, papers published in the Canadian Journal of Political Science reflect the discipline itself. While the discipline has not undergone a wholesale change, as seems to be the case in history, a sizable proportion of Canada's flagship political science journal is composed of papers using critical approaches and methodologies that place a greater emphasis on narratives of historical marginalization, particularly with respect to indigenous peoples and decolonization. Second, the journal's openness to critical methodologies and identity diversity has been accompanied by a narrowing of its ideological diversity. While authors' policy recommendations are by no means ideologically homogenous, they generally range from center-left to far-left. This tilt is most obvious in papers that focus on decolonization, but it is present throughout the entire journal. Of 227 papers published over the last five years, I did not find a single one that provided anything approximating a conservative policy recommendation. By contrast, even the journal's most empirically rigorous quantitative papers often contain recommendations such as political parties should recruit and promote more women candidates. And policy tools specifically designed to problematize, target and alleviate racial economic inequality also seem needed conservative scholars used to publish mildly conservative policy recommendations in the journal. Those days are now long gone. Third, the journal editor's statement is sadly reflective of similar statements made in Canadian higher education regarding equity, diversity, and inclusion, insofar as it refuses to acknowledge any previous progressive change. The Canadian Journal of Political Science had already clearly opened itself up to diverse perspectives and methodologies in recent years. Several papers in a 2017 special issue had already identified some of these changes. Yet this did not stop its new editors from claiming that the discipline was still engaged in gatekeeping on behalf of white androcentric paradigms. Thankfully, political scientists are well equipped to use data to test the truth of such speculative arguments. In spite of the challenges facing our universities, Canadians continue to profess high levels of trust in academics, including those in the social sciences and humanities. To retain such trust, we must demonstrate a commitment to the core purposes of the university intellectual curiosity and the pursuit of truth. We do ourselves no favors when we abandon these goals in favor of political projects.
0: That was a commentary by Dave Snow. He's an associate professor in political science. That's it for today's edition of Hub Headlines. We hope you enjoyed the program. To receive all our best commentary and analysis each morning by email, subscribe to the Hub for as little as 25 cents a day. You can do that right now at thehub.ca. Hub Headlines is produced by Alicia Rao. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Gluskin-Granowski Charitable Foundation and the From Charitable Foundation.